our culture is very, very conscious of time. When you think about it, we have, you know, clocks on the walls everywhere you go. We have cell phones with clocks on them. We have er what every appliance in the kitchen now, right, has a clock on it. So everything, so every time the power goes out, it takes like 20 minutes to reset all the clocks. And then you have bank. Every bank has like a, a, a clock with a, with a uh, you know, tells you what time it is. They're never right. Um, they're on our vehicles. We have watches. How many of you wear watches? How many people wear? So a lot of watches. And like, when I first came to Gateway, I wore a watch. And, um, and, and I stopped wearing a watch. And the reason I stopped wearing a watch was because uh, I discovered something. I discovered when I, I would be up here on the weekends and I would be teaching and I would wonder what time it was. In the old building, we didn't have a clock. Actually, notice we don't actually have a clock in this room either. Isn't that funny? That's kind of strange. And I uh, wonder why that is. And so I would like be preaching and I wouldn't know what time it was. And so I would always look at my watch. And you know, what I noticed was when I looked at my watch, guess what everyone else in the room did? They looked at, they looked, so I got rid of my watch. I don't even, I got one when we went to Nicaragua this summer because um, I knew uh, I wasn't going to have it. You know, I'd be wondering, how do I have five or six or seven hours left to dig? And so uh, I got a watch for that, but it just sits in my, uh, in my closet. Now, I, I got a clock on the stage, uh, and that kind of keeps me on task. But when we think about time um, as Americans, I think the most common question that we ask about time is, what time is it, right? I mean, we're always wondering, what time, is it? what time is it? Why are we always asking that question? Well, the simple answer is because time is running out. Time's running out. And we have calendars to help us keep track of how fast the days are going by and how fast the, the months and the years are going by. We have clocks. We have watches to help us track the hours and the minutes. And then if you, if you really want to get depressed, you can get a watch with a second hand and just literally watch, you know, your life ticking away. And, and I said that because the older you get, um, the faster time seems to go. Now we know it's not actually going faster, right? But those of you who are older, you know, those of you who are older, you know what I mean? It just seems like time, like, like when, when you were a kid, I was thinking about this, when, when, when I was a kid, if, if Christmas was a month away, that just seemed like eternity, didn't it? It's a month until Christmas. Now it seems like it's Christmas every other month, doesn't it? Like they're, they're, like they'll be putting out the decorations at the mall probably in 10 or 20 days. It's just like, seems like just as fast as you turn around. When you get older, it seems like time just goes faster and faster. And I was, I was thinking as I was preparing for this series, I remember a conversation that I had, um, and I must have been probably about 13 years old or so, with a next door neighbor who had a, he had his 50th birthday. I, and I can still remember this. So that's probably 13-ish. He turned 50, and we were talking one day, and it was his birthday, and, and we, he was good friends with our family. And I remember saying, man, you, I just, I actually told him, it came out of my mouth, dude, you're so old. And, and I, I, I was like, man, you got like, you know, have you picked out the plot yet? You know, and that, because you're so, you're 50. You're so old. And he kind of laughed and he told me, man, you know what? You're going you're, you're to blink and one day you're going to be 50. And I, I remember thinking like, that's nuts. I'm not going to be 50 for like 100 years. And I wasn't, math was never like my specialty, but you know, uh, my, my idea was I figured he was probably born 40 and um, you know, it would be a long time. And then of course, about eight days ago, uh, I turned 50. And, and it went by 
pretty fast. By the way, thanks for all the really cool cards. I have to share one though with you. So this is from the Taylors. I thought this was a great card. It says, so you're 50. Hey, look on the bright side. And you open it up and it says, okay, well, there is no bright side. There's a bright light, but you're going to want to stay away from that. So <laughs> anyways, I thought that was pretty good. Now, the Bible actually has a lot to say about time. Um, all the way through the Bible. Here's a, here's a really happy thought from the book of Job, because nothing's as happy like Job. Job's writing, he says, my life passes more swiftly than a runner. Um, yeah, I run, but in my case, it wouldn't be so threatening. Uh, it, it flees away uh, filled with tragedy. I mean, there's like a Hallmark card, isn't there? That's I want a calendar with that on it. <clears throat> in the New Testament as well, you pick up this, James says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That, that mist that he has and, uh, is like the idea of going out in the morning when it's really cold and you breathe out and there's that, that vapor, that mist, and it's there for a minute and it's gone. And James is just saying, you know, um, life, it's quick. Life is short. It, it's fast. And studies tell us that as we get older, our, the way we view time, it changes. And for those of you who are old enough, you could probably, you know, give a testimony to this. But they say that somewhere in our 40s, and for some a little earlier, for some a little later, but sometime in our 40s, we begin to change the way we think about time. It's been said that, that before that, um, we tend to think about how many years we have. So somebody might say, I'm 18. And what they mean is, I have 18 years. Like, that's a good, I got 18 years. I got 21 years, right? That's what I got. I I have 30 years. But they say that sometime in your 40s, you start to think differently. And you stop thinking about, so much about how many years you had. And you start thinking about how many years you think you have. You start looking forward because you sense that there's an, an approaching, you know, kind of finish line that's coming up, you may not know exactly where it is, and, and, but I can remember, and I, I journal a lot, I write down stuff a lot, and I can remember the day I was journaling, and it struck me. I, I thought about the fact, it just kind of hit me like, you know what? I think, I think I have fewer days in front of me than I have behind me, and if you've, if you've been there, you know what I mean, when that's kind of a it's, for some people, it's actually incredibly traumatic. Um, we have a term for that. It's called a midlife crisis. And, uh, you know, that's when the sports cars and the gold chains and the hair club for men and all that stuff uh, comes out. And in fact, if, you, if, if you're around there yet and it hasn't really struck you, I found a website that'll help you get there. It's called uh, deathclock.com. And I know you probably can't read it, and don't get on your crackberries right now and look at it, but you can go, so you can punch in, you can punch in your, uh, I know you probably can't read it, your, your uh, date of birth, uh, month, year, and th- they don't really ask for much. They want to know your, your gender. They want to know, the mode there is uh, you're either pessimistic or optimistic or normal. Uh, and then uh, you can guess what pessimistic does for you. And then there's the BMI, the uh, body mass index. And uh, they'll help you figure that out if you don't know what that is. And then your smoking status. And then you can click, check your death clock. And I, I don't know how it does it, but it comes up with supposedly the date of your death with a countdown clock. <laughs> so it's like, and it's counting down in seconds. It's like the minute you turn it on, it's like panic. You, know, you just see, now I don't know how accurate it is. I'm guessing not at all. At least I'm hoping it's not accurate. But when we talk about, about this, you know, there's, we're going to say this, uh, and this is our big idea for this evening. That as a culture, we think mostly about what time is it, but there's something more important than knowing what time it is. Really, and that's knowing what to do 
with the time that we have right now? What do I do with the time that I have left, with the days that I have left? We would think of it this way. How should I be spending my time? And that's a good way to think about it because when you, when, you, when you think it through, we're always trading or spending our time on something, aren't we? Always. You are trading time right now, right now. I hope you're feeling good about it, you know, because this is exciting, isn't it, tonight? Aren't you feeling good? But we're always spending our time, and we'll never get that back. Never. I want to look tonight at Psalm 90. Now, when we think about the Psalms, we think about maybe David writing the Psalms. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. I've got it in your notes, though, if you don't. Psalm 90, though, was written by a guy named Moses. And you've probably heard of him, and you may not think of Psalms and in Moses when you think about those together, but this is actually probably one of the oldest Psalms that we have. And, and Moses, of course, was a guy who had a pretty interesting perspective on time, if you will. You, you know the story. He was born in Egypt uh, at a, into a Hebrew family at a time when um, they were practicing a program of infanticide on Hebrew baby boys. So if a Hebrew boy was born, the baby was to be put to death. But when Moses was born, his parents uh, decided there's no way they could do that. So you know the story. Mom makes a little uh, basket and puts baby Moses in there when he's getting too big to hide anymore and, and hides him among the reeds and the rushes of the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughter comes along and she discovers the baby boy. And when she sees him, it says basically she just falls in love with this kid. And uh, I mean, of course, he's a baby who couldn't. So she takes him and she adopts him and he's raised in Pharaoh's home. And uh, even though he's a Hebrew, he's, he grows up, he's educated as an Egyptian, he learns to talk like an Egyptian, learns to walk like an Egyptian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really wanted to have the music for that, but we'll do that another time. And, um, and then it occurs to him one day that he's not Egyptian. And he sees the way that his Hebrew brethren are being treated, rather mistreated, by the Egyptians, and so you know the story. One day he sees an, an Egyptian who's abusing a Hebrew, and Moses steps in. And in the process of defending the Hebrew, he ends up killing the Egyptian. So he hides the body, but, you know, Pharaoh finds out about it and puts a price on his head, and so he flees. He has to go from living this life of, of privilege to flee, and he goes to the wilderness. And he lives in the wilderness, and, and while he's there, he, he meets a guy named Jethro. He gets a job as a shepherd. Um, he, he gets a wife. He has some kids. And for 40 years, for 40 years, this, a lot of times we break up the life of Moses into three 40-year sections, and this is kind of the middle section. And so he's living in the desert, and every day is probably pretty much the same for Moses. If the sun comes up, you know, he has his egos, he goes out and he watches the sheep for the day, and then he comes home, he has dinner, catches a little Netflix movie, updates his Facebook profile, and he goes to bed. And every day is 40, 40 years. 40 years he's doing this. And you have to imagine after a while, don't you, when he was 50 or 60 or 70, thinking, you know, man, the first part of my life, privilege and so cool, and, I, and then I stood up for what I thought was right, and now here I am. This is, he had to be thinking, this is my life. And when he's, when he's 80 years old, we're told one day he's out there, he's been in the wilderness for 40 years, and one day he's out and he's tending the sheep, and there's this bush. Remember that? And the bush is burning, and God talks to him, and he says, Moses, I've got a whole new thing for you to do. I want you to go to, back to Pharaoh, and I want you to say, let my people go. And, you know, Pharaoh says no, and then there's the plagues. And then finally Pharaoh says yes, kind of reluctantly, and Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he has another 40 years, another 40 years of leading them, 
through the wilderness. And Psalm 90 is kind of Moses' attempt to give us uh, some perspective, if you will, on time. Because Moses was a guy who understood this concept. And, and here's, here's his point, if this makes sense to you. What, what he's trying to say to us in Psalm 90, in the first part is this. Then when it comes to understanding time, context is everything. If you want to understand your life and the time of your life, context is everything. When you have the right context, it brings perspective and focus and wisdom. So let's look at what Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 1, he says this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. He's he's speaking from the point of Israel. You've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Now that word generation is a, he's kind of cluing us into where he's going to go here. He kind of drops a little clue in verse 1. Generation. You know what that means. It's not just about me and my life. He's saying it's a little bit bigger than that. And then he goes on and he says this. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You might underline that phrase uh, in, in your notes, from everlasting to everlasting, he says, you are God. In other words, what he says is this. When we think about our lives and we think about the context of our life, this is how we usually think. There's birth and there's death. And we think of our lives as kind of, those are the bookends to my life. That's the context of my life, birth and death. Moses comes along and says, that's actually not true. You're going to have to kind of kick those things out. You need to understand the context. Here's the context of your life. It's not just birth to death. The context of your life is, we'll say, everlasting to everlasting with God in the center. It's everlasting to everlasting. And then somewhere in that everlasting to everlasting, God is, he thought up you. He planned your life. He created you. He, he dropped you down on the timeline in this world. And, and he invites you for a small period of time into what he's doing on this earth. The context of life is God. From everlasting to everlasting, not just you, in birth to death. And life only makes sense when we think of it in those terms, in that context. But of course, the problem is, when, when we're young, we, we tend to think that we're the point. We tend to think that we're the context of life. In fact, you know, if you've ever seen a newborn child, it's safe to say, newborn children don't sit around and contemplate the idea of everlasting to everlasting. Newborns, they just pretty much think the entire world revolves around them. Uh, when they're hungry, right, the world needs to feed them. When they, when they don't smell good, the, the world needs to change them. When they need a nap, the, the world needs to get quiet and let them settle down. And, and of course, as you get older, and, and, and studies tell us that this whole kind of me context kind of actually grows into adolescence. And, and uh, you know, they say typically that in and, and, and the period of adolescence, it's kind of the hype of thinking that the whole world should revolve around you and your needs and your desires and your options. Now, not, not all teenagers are like that, but studies say that, that most are. Nobody at our church is like that, but they say most of them are. And, but the point is you tend to think that the whole world revolves around you. And when it doesn't revolve around you, what do you do? You tend to get angry and stressed and, and, and resentful. And then we start to get a little bit older. We get in our 20s and our 30s and we start to notice this kind of, this, this commonality in life. We start to notice that everybody is pretty much the same, no matter how smart they are or rich they are or poor they are. Everybody kind of heads down the same general path in life. We're, we're born 
And then we get a little older and we start going to grade school and then we go to middle school. That's fun. And then we go to, you know, high school and then we graduate and then maybe some people go to college and some people get a job and then you graduate from college and then you go back to the people who got a job and hopefully you get a job and then you, you try to get married and some people do and some people don't and some people do more than once or, you know, and then you, you maybe you have a family and then the kids grow up and you retire and you golf a few rounds, you get sick and you die. And, and honestly, I mean, when you think about it, you, you, you're like, wow, there's kind of a, it doesn't matter who you are, does it? Everybody is pretty much stuck in that cycle. Look in verse 3 what he says. These are really fun words. I mean, this is like exciting reading. He says, you turn people back to dust, saying return to dust. He's just saying no matter how much you accomplish in life, no matter how cool you are, no matter how popular, rich, accomplished, famous you are, we all have the same appointment with death. In verse 4, he says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. This, is a, this to me is such an intriguing passage. I, I, I love reading through this last few weeks and kind of parsing this down. Because at first he says, it seems like he says, um, God, uh, like a thousand years to me is like a day to God. Kind of a thought, isn't it? Because God's eternal, and and uh, so a thousand years to me. But that's not really what He says here, is it? He doesn't say a thousand years to me is like a day to God. What He says is a thousand years to me is like a day that's just gone by to God. That's a little different than you know a day that just went by is a little bit different than the day in front of you, isn't it? Right? Because the day that just went by is like, and that's what He's saying. He's saying a, a, a thousand years to me to God is like. Not just a day, but like a day that just went by. What's that? It's over. It's, it's done. It's a memory. Maybe it's a photograph or, or an entry in your journal, but that, it's, it's over. It's done. And, and then he makes another comparison. Or it's like a watch. It's like a watch in the night. Uh, oh, they would divide back in those days the, the dark hours of the night into three or four periods, kind of depending on what culture you were a part of. And they'd have these three or four, and they called them watches, and they were made up of three to four hours apiece. So for instance, maybe if you were in, living in a city and you're, it was your job to guard, be a guard in the city tonight at the gate, you would get a watch. And you might do a watch or two watches, and that might be anywhere from three to four hours to do a watch. So I was kind of wondering about the math this week. He, so he's kind of saying, you know, a, a thou, what, what's a thousand years to me is like a watch in the night to God. And that math is a little too hard to me. He's just basically saying a thousand years for me is like four hours to God. And so I had my kids do the math for me because they're better at math than me. And what it came out to is this. I, I asked this question. If I live for 75 years, um, I'm not saying that's what deathclock.com says, but if I live for 75 years, <laughs> um, uh, how long would that be to God? And the answer was it's about 81 seconds. Think about that for almost like, okay, almost an, a, a year, a second. So when God really could look at us and say, boy, they grow up so fast, don't they? Because, I mean, <laughs> we do, and they get old and they're gone. And, and then he goes on and he says this. He says, now you sweep men away in the sleep of death. And they're like the new grass in the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry. And it's withered. Now, his point isn't that your life doesn't matter, even though that's what it feels like. 
is the point. That's not what he's saying here. Instead, what he's just saying is this. Your, life, your, your time on earth is too short to just be about you. It's too short. It's too fast. It's too fleeting to just be about you. In, instead, you need to get this point. Your life is about everlasting to everlasting with God in the middle. That, that is life. Now, I don't know if you know anyone who thinks the world revolves around them. I mean, it's one thing when you're a kid. It's another thing when, when you see full-grown adults who think the whole world revolves around them. And my guess is you're, you're thinking of someone like that right now. Maybe you work for them or are related to them somehow. Or, you know, they live next door. Maybe uh, you see them every Christmas. We've all seen corporations run by people, haven't we, who, who make everything about them. Uh, we've seen classrooms, you know, run by people who think the whole world revolves around them. That's always fun. Or uh, especially if you get more than one of them in a semester. Or we've even seen nations. We've seen nations where the ruler just, they don't care at all about the people. They think the entire, you know, the whole entire nation is there to serve them. It's been said that when, when people don't put God at the center, but when they put themselves at the center, two things always happen when people live life with themselves at the center. First is, they always leave a trail of wounded people. And that, that's true, right? We all know that. Uh, broken families, ruined friendships, and workplaces and neighborhoods. And none of us want to be that person. But that's what happens when you put yourself at the center and not God. But the second thing is this. When a person puts themselves at the center, they always run out of time. They always run out of time. No matter how rich they are, they're going to run out of time. No matter how accomplished they are, no matter how hard they work, they're going to run out of time. And when you die, when you die, your stuff is going to be taxed and inherited and divided up and, you know, what no one wants, they'll put on eBay and, you know, eventually it will be scattered. No matter how much stuff you had, it will all be divided. And people will mourn you and then they will think less of you. And then one day, aren't you excited? You will just completely be forgotten on the face of this earth. (laughs) And then he goes on and says this because we're so excited about where he's headed here. He says, we are consumed by your anger. Now, now this is an interesting concept here that, uh, that Moses takes. It's like he's turning a corner, and you kind of, when you read it, you're like, well, where's he coming from? We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Now, what's he talking about here? I, as I read the context of Psalm 90, here's where I think Moses is going. He's thinking about the brevity of life. He's thinking about how fast it goes. He's thinking about how life is really meant to be with everlasting to everlasting with God in the center. But how often we forget God and we put ourselves in the center and we make life all about us. And I think what he's saying here is when, we, when life is all about me and all about my stuff and when I forget God, God has a very strong reaction to that kind of life. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our, in, our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. He just says everything has been laid bare before God. All our days pass away under your wrath, and we finish our years with a moan. And our days may come to, to 70 years or, or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we, we fly away. He says, even the best of of lives have sorrow and challenges. And then the next verse is is a little bit 
tricky to, to clearly understand. But this is what he says in verse 11. He says, if, if only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Now he's talking about the, the power of his anger, and I think he's just wrapping up what he's talked about in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. This is God's response to our pride. God's response to the arrogance that would take a gift of life and, and then shut God out and say, you know, it's about me and what I want and what I want to do and my money and my stuff and in me, 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 me. And I, and I torture and I abuse the people around me and I forget God. And God's reaction is, he says, if only we knew the, the, the power of God's anger against a selfish life like that, against the sin and the pride. He says, if, if only we knew. I love that because what he's saying is we don't know. We, we don't comprehend this. Why don't, why don't we comprehend the arrogance and the pride of putting ourselves first in life? Why don't we get that? Well, I think, I think part of it is because um, we don't want to. I mean, I think most of the time we really don't want, do, do we? Do we want to sit down and just really, really examine our lives and think about our selfishness? I mean, I think most of us, we don't want to. We don't want to think about that. Uh, I think a lot of us are just so distracted, we never actually have the time to think about the life that we're living. It takes effort, it takes work, it takes prayer, and quite frankly, it's a downer, you know? I mean, who wants to sit around and think about how little we are and about how great God is? And then he says this, and, and this is the phrase that's very difficult to, uh, to translate into English and, and kind of to get the sense of what he's saying here. And I read a lot of different um, translations over the last few weeks, and everyone has this different with kind of a different slant on it. But he says this. He says, Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Now, it's a little awkward. Um, different translates, translations put it differently, but I think a good paraphrase based on everything he's just said is this. If we could see God as he is, we would gladly give him the reverence that he deserves. If, if we could really see life and, and, and the brevity of life and the, the pride and the foolishness of thinking that life is about us, about our, our birth and our death and with us in the middle instead of everlasting to everlasting with God in the middle. If we saw that, we would gladly, willingly give God our 70 or 80 years and we would, we would gladly put him at the center of our life. But the problem is we don't see it clearly. We don't. And we don't understand. We don't. And, and, and most of us here, it, even as we're talking about this, if we were honest, we'd have to admit, uh, yeah, I'm kind of I'm seeing what God says, but, you know, I just want to go have dinner, you know. And we can kind of, we can be like that. We cannot really see what's going on here. And, and that's why he gets to verse 12. And this is really where he really kind of wraps it up. And then he says this. And, and it kind of transitions into a prayer at this point. He prays to God and he says to God, in fact, let's read this together. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Yeah. He says, teach us. In fact, he says, teach us. And you might underline that. Teach us. What he's saying is we, 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 we won't do that on our own. We won't. And, we, and maybe we can't. I think maybe that's the big point. He's saying, you know, we can't. We're not actually capable of really numbering our days. So we need God to help us. So, so teach us. And this is where we're going to kind of hang out for the rest of the series. God, would you open my eyes? W- would your Holy Spirit 
teach me what this means. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to live as if our days are numbered because they are. Now, we don't know how long they are, and we don't know how long we have. And some of you, you know, you, some of you are sitting in this room, and you might look across the room at somebody who's twice your age, and you may think you have twice as much time, but, you know, the truth is, you may go home to be with God long before they do. That we don't know. We don't know how long we have. So we ask God, teach us to number our days. That, that, that's a tricky thing. How does God teach us to do something when we don't really know how many days we have? But we all know what that's like. We, we've all numbered our days before. Um, you know, if you're in school, you've probably numbered the days until vacation or summer vacation. There comes a point when it's getting close and you know how many days there are till summer vacation. You've numbered your days or how many days until graduation or maybe you finally got a date, you know, and you've, you've numbered the days or, or how long you think it'll be. Or for those of you, really not guys, it doesn't work for guys, but for women, if, you know, you're married, when you were engaged, you probably you know, knew how many days it was. If there's somebody engaged here right now, she probably knows how many days and hours and maybe even minutes. And, or if you've had a big exam or, or surgery or something. And, and when we number our days, there's, there's a few things that we know. We, we, we know how much time we have left, and we usually know what we have to do to be ready when that, when that time is over. So he says we need to number our days. Why is it so important for us to number our days? Well, I'd say two reasons. The first one is because it, it just reflects reality. The reality is our days are numbered. And the reality is that, our, that, that, that the value of our existence will be measured by what we put at the center. And if we put God at the center of our life, that means that we need to begin to pursue life with God's objectives and, and, and priorities in mind. And I say that because it's so, it's so easy for us, when, when we look at life from our point of view, it's so easy for us to think, well, I have some time to, to burn. I have some time to waste. I'll, I'll get serious about life when I'm old. I'll, I'll, you know, when I get in my 20s, when I get in my 30s, when I'm really super old like Pastor Bob, then I'll get serious about, you know, numbering my days. What he's saying is that's foolish. Whatever age you are today, this is the day right now to number your days because the reality is your days are numbered. But there's a second kind of practical reason that he says we should number our days. That is that we could gain a heart of wisdom. What he's saying is that when I number my days, when God teaches me how to number my days, I'm going to make better decisions with the time that I have left. It's easy to look back sometimes and go, well, I, you know, I, I haven't been so wise in some of the decisions I've made. God says, but today could be the day when all that changes. Because when we learn to number our days, we begin to make better decisions with the time we have left. Better financial decisions, relational decisions, parenting, educational, vocational, scheduling decisions. He says, today could be the day when all of that changes. What do we do? We invite God into the center of our days. I would just say to you right here, no matter how old you are, you may think, well, I don't know how much time left or how young you are. Today is the day. I think Moses would say to you, it doesn't matter how old you are. Today is the day to invite God in to your days, to put him at the center of your life. Moses did that. Think about this. That's what Moses did. And thousands of years later, Moses isn't just famous. Moses is a household name all over the world, isn't he? Because he learned to put God at the center of his days.
So I've, I've put a prayer in your notes this week. And uh, I think this would be a great thing for you to be praying this week to just pray something like this. Heavenly Father, teach me to number my days that I might gain a heart of wisdom and fulfill your purpose for my life. In fact, let's all read that together. Heavenly Father, teach me to number my days that I might gain a heart of wisdom and fulfill your purpose in my life. God, show me life from your perspective how to view my time and my relationships and my opportunities and my challenges. So where do we go from here? Well, for the next four weeks, maybe five, I'm still debating, we're going to be talking a little bit about some specific ways that uh, we can do this. And a few things I want to mention. If you're here this evening and, and you're a Christ follower, there was a point in your life in the past where you made that commitment and gave your life to Christ. My, my question for you would be this. Are you living that way right now? Have you, is Christ in a practical level at the center of your life today? Or is it possible that you've kind of pushed him aside and right now you're, you're kind of living at the center, the center of your time, the center of your finances, the center of your relationships. And tonight, the Holy Spirit's been saying to you, like, you've been living life way too small. You've been thinking birth and you've been thinking death and it's time to kind of kick those bookends out today again and remember, your life is about everlasting to everlasting with God at the center. And maybe tonight's the night when the Holy Spirit's just telling you, this, is a, this would be a great night to recommit and say, tonight, right now, I'm going to put God at the center of my life again. Maybe you're here and, and, and this is all foreign to you. Maybe as we're talking about this, you're thinking, this sounds great, but I've never, I've never actually made that decision to put Christ ever at the center of my life. But God's been speaking to your heart tonight. And this is the night. You can make that move. We, we talk all the time here about the, the ABCs. We say, how do you get a life connected with God? Well, you admit your need. You need God at the center of your life. You've tried to do it on your own. You've tried to be good enough. It doesn't work. You admit that you have a need. And, and the B is for belief. You believe or you trust that what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross is good enough. It's good enough to make you right with God. And the C is that you just make the choice. You choose right here, right now to give your life to Christ and to do what we've talked about. To say, Jesus, I'm putting you at the center of my life. From now on, my life is about you. Not about me. It's about you. I was trying to imagine this week, what would it, what would it look like? Think about this for a minute. What would it look like if Gateway decided to be a church that numbered its days? What would we look like as a church if we decided we don't have time to burn and waste anymore? We need to get serious about every day that God gives us. What would happen to us as a church if we decided tonight, this might be the last night as a congregation that we have to worship God together? Would that change the way that we worship? What would that look like if every time we gathered together, we thought this could be it, so we're going to worship tonight we're going to worship God the way that he deserves. What if we decided when we got together that this might be the last time I have to encourage another believer, to pray for them, to lift them up, to give them a hug, to see how they're doing and pray for them? Would that change the way that we fellowship? Or for, you know, for us as we go out from here tonight, we go to our neighborhoods and our homes and our places of work and schools where we're, we're around people in our oikos, right? Our oikos is those, we call that our eight to fifteen. And there's some people in your life, they don't know Jesus. Would, would your relationship with them this next week be different 
If you decided that your days are numbered and their days are numbered and it's time to get serious, what would happen to the intensity and the passion of this church? What if we decided this is it? This is the last year that we have. So let's press hard and give God what he deserves. I don't know, but to me, that sounds like the kind of church God wants, the kind of people he wants us to be. Let's pray together.